And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 43. And as you turn, I want you to think about the, the question, who are you? Why are you here? Uh, Cody, pull up the picture of Arthur uh, Schopenhauer. Now, you might not know Arthur, but Arthur has been extremely influential over the last hundred years. He was a German philosopher that lived in the late 1800s, very influential to people like Nietzsche. And so if you believe things like the goal of life is to discover your authentic existence and to be true to yourself, then you've been shaped by Arthur. And uh, Arthur had a complete and total nervous breakdown in his life. And one morning, he was found passed out in the middle of a kind of like Central Park, but in Berlin, and the security guard who finds him passed out, hair wild, leaves and dirt all over him, kind of wakes him up and uh, says, hey, what are you doing here? And then he jumps up, grabs him by the shoulders and says, I wish to God somebody could tell me. I don't think that's what the police officer had in mind. <laughs> you can imagine, he's like, all right, we got a knuckle, we got a wise guy on our hands. <laughs> and that's what, like, what are you doing here? I wish to God someone could tell me. And you know, in some sense, we all live in the wake of Arthur trying to figure out like, who am I? Why am I here? Historian Carl Truman says, today there's perhaps no more pressing topic than identity whether we're speaking about race, ethnicity, sexuality, and how they shape political discourse, or about how our own personal sense of self and how that informs our day-to-day -day lives. And the question of identity is omnipresent, all-pervasive, and deeply influential. And the question is why? Why is that such an intense, significant question? Why are we all crying out with Arthur, I wish somebody could tell me, who am I? Why am I here? You know, we're doing a series right now. We've taken a break. Our normal pattern is to move expositionally through books of the Bible. And we've spent two and a half years going through the first half of Matthew. And we're, we're taking a little pause. And uh, we're, we're honing in on the theme of gospel transformation. What does it mean to be transformed by the gospel? How does it change you? How do you experience its power in your life? And our first little segment is somewhere called Created and Called because the foundation... If you're going to experience the gospel's power in your life, you have to know that you have been created in love and called for a purpose. And in our verse this morning, this passage, Isaiah 43, it's one of the best and most beautiful distillations of that reality. Created and called. So what we're going to do first is we're just kind of going to move through the passage, and then we're going to end with really highlighting and honing one or two key aspects of it. So let's just first begin by getting a sense of, all right, this is Isaiah 43. Now, one of the most important things when you're kind of going through the Bible is just keeping things in context. So as we're kind of moving around, one of the dangers is to miss the context that the passages are in. So Isaiah 43, we saw a couple weeks ago from Isaiah 55. Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 55 is one of the most beautiful, breathtaking uh, pieces of literature just in all of, all of the world. Um, it's incredibly influential, quoted more in the New Testament than any other section of the Bible other than the Psalms. And what we see in this passage is this incredible demonstration of the hope and comfort that the gospel can bring. 
And we saw a couple weeks ago that it climaxes in Isaiah 55 where God has said, my suffering servant has come and he's purchased salvation. And that salvation is bringing worldwide restoration, a celebration, and everyone is invited to come. Come to the celebration. But Isaiah 43 is in the midst of the section where he's trying to set up the problem that the suffering servant has to solve. So we have a problem, and our primary problem is that because of sin, we're stained and dirty, and we need to be forgiven, but that we're also chained and bound, and we need to be set free. So here's the question. How can we find forgiveness and freedom? And this, in the midst of that section, is this incredible light that's meant to encourage you to pursue the redemption that the servant is going to purchase. So let's kind of walk through and get a sense. So when you're going through the, the passage, any section in the Bible, one good, helpful kind of, uh, not, not trick, but one of the things you're trying to do is look for the frames. So in oral cultures, before you know, things were written with like paragraph demarcations, you would have an opening and closing statement. And the opening statement would kind of summarize it. And then the closing statement would uh, kind of summarize what had been unpacked. So we want to look at kind of the frames. And, uh, you know, this is a study hack. So any teenagers, kids, high school, college, you know, one way you can speed read through your textbooks is if it's a well-written textbook, you can read the first sentence and the last sentence of every paragraph, and you'll have a good sense of what it's about. But you need to go back and read the other stuff. So, <laughs> but you can look at the frame. So let's look at the frame, uh, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob... He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And now if we can, Cody, let's jump down to seven. Sorry, look at seven. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. So that's the frame. It's about how God has created you. He's formed you for a reason, for a purpose. So now, sorry, go, go back to verse 1. <laughs> so let's look, go back to verse 1 and start walking through. So here's the frame. And then first, in creation, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. This is creative language. He who created, bara, this is Genesis 1, the one who speaks life into existence. By the power of his word, he has spoken life, and now it exists. That's powerful word, and then he who formed you. This is Genesis 2, the one who got his hands dirty in the dirt of the earth to make and form and fashion, the one who has knit you and you are fearfully and wonderfully made, the master craftsman who is forming you. He who created you and formed you, fear not. Twice in this section, that's the, that's the call. Do not be afraid, fear not, for I have redeemed you. First creation, now recreation. I have redeemed you. That's to purchase out of slavery, to take on all of the obligations and debts of those with whom I'm in relationship with. You know, in a traditional culture that's family-centered, you know, you'd have a, you know, a head of the household, and the head of the household would be financially liable and responsible for the debts and the liabilities for all of those in his household. You know, if you're a parent, you may think that's still a reality now. 
But so the idea of the kinsman redeemer is that when somebody in the household gets themselves in a situation where they are, in essence, in bondage, they are in debt, something has happened to them, it's their responsibility to go get them, to free them, to take on those obligations as part of what I have redeemed you. But even in that, there still can be a sense of relational distance. It's like you can pay the debt that someone owes, get them out of jail, get them out of trouble, but then still not be connected. So notice the next line. Not only has he redeemed you, but I have called you by name, and you are mine. He doesn't just redeem, he names. And then he calls into his presence and says, you are mine. This is like the image of Ruth and Boaz, where he's her kinsman redeemer who purchases her out of poverty, but then does and brings her in and then marries her. You're now mine. So it's much more intimate. So creation, recreation. This is, this in essence is who you are. Now let's look about what you're going to go through. Verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, and they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not uh, overcome you, or shall not consume you. Passing through the waters, this is Exodus language, when you, the people, are brought out, and you pass through the waters, they're not going to overwhelm you. When you come to the Jordan and you feel stuck, we're going to pull the waters apart, and you're going to be able to pass through. You will not be overwhelmed. And, but then when you go through the fire, walk through the fire, this is, this is exile language. When the invading army has come and they've sacked the city and they put it on fire and you, it's on fire and you have to flee and you have to escape, you still will pass through and you will not get burned. So what this is an image of the totality of life's trials. Whatever the worst you could imagine, you go through this and you feel like you're utterly overwhelmed. He says, you won't be overwhelmed. No matter what pain you're going to walk through, he says, you won't be burned. So in essence, this is an invitation to catastrophize. Where, you know, sometimes part of what fuels fear is the what if. Like, what if, what if, what if? And this is almost an invitation. All right, well, what if? What is the worst could that could happen? Let's do a worst case scenario. And then even in then, guess what? I am still with you. I am with you. And then how can you know this? Look at verse 3 and 4. How do you know this? What's the reason? For I am the Lord your God. I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It's, it's because of who I am, not who you are. The point is it's because of who I am. The promises are rooted in who I am. And then what I've already done. I, get, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba as in exchange for you. I've already purchased you out of slavery. I've already purchased and redeemed you. This is what I've already done. This is who I am. I am your God and your Savior. And then notice in verse 4, but this is who you are. Because you are precious in my eyes. And honored. And I love you. Precious, this is the value he sees in them. They're honored. This is the dignity he confers on them. You are loved. This is the affection he has for them. And this is not a blind, kind of ignorant, naive love. The whole point of the first 37 uh, chapters of Isaiah is he's very aware of all of their failings and all of their uh, the struggles and who they actually are. He can see them better than they can see themselves and still says, you are precious. You are honored. You are loved. These are all perfect tenses. I mean, this is something that's true, that's in the past, but has continuing relevance in the now. And then again, the call in verse 5, fear not. 
for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. He says this cataclysm that you're experiencing right now, this exile where you're cast away, where everything you love has been lost, everything you held dear has been taken from you. This cataclysm is not the end. And in some ways, this is no different from other cataclysms that happened in the past that I have redeemed and brought my people through. This exile is no harder than the slavery they were in in Egypt. And then back to the summary in verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So returning back to the question... You know, it's kind of a shame that a uh, security guard who woke up Arthur didn't know Isaiah 43. Because he said, oh, I wish to God somebody could tell me. He says, well, I have good news. God has told you. This is why you're here. Whom I made for my glory. So let's take a moment and let's kind of just dwell here. What does it mean to be made for God's glory? When we talk about the glory of God. What are we talking about? You know, that's a biblical word that we often say, we repeat often here, for the glory of God and the good of his people. What does it mean to glorify God? And what does this mean that this is why you were made? I was trying to get the point, trying to set this up with our kids at breakfast this week as we were going over this first. And uh, my boys were starting to get into baseball. And I said, all right, let's, let's think about baseball. All right, what's the point of baseball? And instantly, to hit a home run. No, 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 and then, no, and then right back, well, to hit a grand slam. Yes, it hit grand slams. But no, all right, to run around the bases, to throw, to eat hot dogs at the place. No, no. Not, that's not the point of baseball. The point is to win the game. And the way you win the game is score more runs than the other team. That's the point. And so often you say, all right, what's the point of life? Why am I here? We can say all types of different things. And it says the point is to glorify God. We are made for his glory. And, you know, I think about in my own life. Uh, you know, one of the great gifts to the church over the last 20, 30 years is the ministry of John Piper and the way he's brought that reality to people. The reality and the centrality of God's glory. Think about when I was a 19-year-old just struggling with you know, who am I and what am I doing here in life? And in a moment, just kind of fumbled into our local Cornerstone Christian bookstore and picked up for the first time. I'd never forget standing there and holding Desiring God for the first time. I remember seeing on the back of the book, the pursuit of pleasure is not optional, it's essential. Thought, okay, that sounds nice. <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> And then opening up and reading like in the introduction when he has a quote from C.S. Lewis where he talks about, um, you know, when one considers the unblushing promises of reward that one finds in the gospel, it will seem that our master finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are like half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex when infinite joy is offered to us. And I just spent, that was on a Saturday morning, and I just spent the entire Friday night cleaning up after people who were pursuing joys that were too weak. And that reality came dawning in. And so we are made for God's glory, for something so much bigger 
And so what does that mean? You know, when we think about how do we make sense of what does it mean to glorify God, the Bible uses glory in three different ways. And so when you go through, you kind of have to synthesize, all right, how is it using that term? The first is it talks about God's glory. The God's glory is something that God shows. Glory is something he shows. And so this is his active manifest presence, like his self-manifestation, sometimes to the eye, but normally to the ear. It's more than just kind of his omnipresence where God is everywhere. It's a special manifestation of his presence. And in the Old Testament, it normally came through fire. Fire or dazzling light, a burning bush on fire, the fire that descends on Mount Sinai. And then Moses comes up and then his face radiates with the glory of God or the way the Lord's presence descended in fire into the tabernacle and at the temple. And then sometimes it would be given a vision, like Isaiah and Ezekiel would be given this vision of the father on the throne. And they see him in his throne room and it's blazing light. So in the Old Testament, it's this image of fire, it's light. Now in the New Testament, there's a transition, and the awe-inspiring glory comes now by the way of a person. We now see it in the face of someone. So Paul says, for God who said, let, there, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we behold him and we see him in his face now is the radiance of the glory of God. That's why when we open up the word and we come to worship our goals, we want to see his face. We want to hear his voice. That's what it means to experience his glory. And John tells us that the word, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And as it dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus, he's praying when he's about to leave earth, he's praying now, Father, glorify me within your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me and see my glory. That's the point of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to keep us in his presence so we can see his glory. So that's the glory he shows. But then the Bible also talks about glory as something we give so we glorify God. We ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. How do we do that? Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The primary way we glorify him is through praise for who he is and thanksgiving for what he's done and what he's given. So a life that glorifies God is primarily marked by praise and thanksgiving. That's why it's so important to Paul where he says rejoice always in everything. Give thanks because that means you're living a life that's glorifying him. Praise to the one who's praiseworthy. Thanksgiving to the one who is gracious. And that's the basic aspects of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Praise. Thanksgiving. So that's the glory we give. But then glory is also used as then the glory God bestows. Because glory isn't just something he shows, it's also something he bestows by transforming you. The glory points to the continual transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, we all beholding his glory have been transformed into his image and his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. 
So our life is meant to be a progressive development of glory. And that glory is, in essence, the fruits of the Spirit being worked out into our life. You know, this the glory of God's children who have a living faith, they're united by Christ, the Spirit is dwelling in them. And I love what J.I. Packer calls the Spirit our master mason of character building and habit forming. So he's working in us certain habits and character, and that character is marked by the fruits of the Spirit. And so you think what it means to live a life that's glorifying God is you're growing and developing the fruits of the Spirit. You know, on the back table there, we have these little booklets that we made years ago. So if you haven't ever picked up one of these, grab one of these or have. This is a little tool, resource to help you. We've made it for our kids, but to help work the fruits of the Spirit into your life. But it isn't just for kids. All of us need this worked into our life. So what does it mean? You were made. Why are you here? You were made to glorify God. What does that mean? It means there's a glory he shows, and there's a response to that glory we offer, and then there's a way we're transformed. So that's the goal of life. But then let's think about a couple gifts that he gives us along the way. So we're not alone as we walk through this. You know, first notice we have our companions. Notice in verse 2, I was kind of teasing last week how we really need a southern version of the Bible so you can hear what the yous and the y'alls are. So notice verse 2, this is not just when you, but notice this is the, when, when y'all pass through the waters. It's not just you alone going through these things. It's not just you alone who's going through the fire. You are moving, you are given companions as you travel through life. The waters are emblematic of things that threaten to overwhelm you. Now notice, when you, not if you, when you pass through the waters, what's the promise? They won't overwhelm you. So you're going through them. You're meant to go together. This is why community is so important. You are not meant to walk and bear the burdens alone. You're meant to walk together. You go through the waters, but the promise is they're not going to overwhelm you. You'll go through the fire, but the promise is it will not burn you. You know, you think about, we think about the things, well, you know, in this world, they had a very real fear of actual water and fire. You know, we've kind of feel like we've mastered nature, so we're not quite as afraid of those things. But in this world, you know, in Israel, ancient Israel is kind of like Florida. Florida, there's only two seasons, hot and hotter. In Israel, there's only two seasons. It's rainy season and dry season. And so in dry season, you have all these wadis who are kind of just areas where you could walk in and you could play. But in the rainy season, when the rains come, the floods could come down and they fill up these little grooves and a flood could overtake you. So every village had stories of people who had died because they they were caught in a flood. And then we talk about fire. We're not necessarily as concerned about fire, but every village in this world, every time a lightning storm came, they were anxious because one strike could set the whole place up ablaze. So we're not quite as nervous about those things, but you know what it means to walk through things where you feel completely overwhelmed. What are you going through now where you are in danger of being totally overwhelmed? We all know what it means to have experiences where you get burned and you say, never again. Never again will I open myself up like that. Never again will I put myself in a situation like that. We know what it is to be overwhelmed and what it means to be burned. So what's threatening to overwhelm you? What's threatening to burn you? But then notice the ultimate promise is in verse 4. Verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored 
and I love you. This is one who's looking down on his people with uh, the love of uh, the smile, the smile of the father. And what this is doing is tapping into one of the deepest desires and needs that everyone feels. It's like in his presence, can I be accepted? Can I be accepted? Can I be seen? You know, like psychologists talk about the most important thing for a new baby when they're born is to find the face of their loving mother and to see it. Am I seen? This idea of can I be accepted? This past week I read a long form article called The Boy Behind the Mask. And it was a remarkable story. It was written by Tom Hallmond, and uh, he wrote it. It was a series of long-form articles that were printed in the Oregonian in October of 2000 through uh, December. And I, I got keyed in on it because I was listening to an interview because he won the Pulitzer uh, for these articles. And the interviewer was asking him, what made them so powerful? And he said, well, at some point, Everybody asked the question, am I accepted? And so he wrote this story. Let me read the first kind of page of the story. And it's talking about a boy named Sam. So the boy sits on the living room sofa, lost in his thoughts and stroking the family cat while his, with his fragile hands. His younger brother and sister sit on the floor chattering and playing cards. But Sam is overcome by an urge to be alone. He lifts the cat off his laps, ignoring the plaintive meow, and silently stands, tottering unsteadily as his thin frame rises in the afternoon light. He threads his way towards the kitchen, where his mother bends over the sink, watching vegetables for supper. Most 14-year-old boys whirl through a room, slapping door jams and dodging around furniture like imaginary halfbacks. But this boy, 5 feet, 83 pounds, has learned never to draw attention to himself. He moves like smoke. He stops in the doorframe leading to the kitchen and melts into the shadows. He watches his mother humming as she runs water over the lettuce. The boy clears his throat and he says he's not hungry. His mother sighs with worry and turns, not bothering to turn off the water to dry her hands. The boy knows she's studying him, running her eyes over his bony arms the way, and the way he wearily props himself up against the doorframe. She's been watching him like this since he, he left the hospital just a few months before. I'm full, he says, and she bends her head towards him about to speak, and he cuts her off. Really, Mom? I'm full. Okay, Sam, she says quietly. The boy slips behind his mother and steps into a pool of light. A huge mass of flesh balloons out from the left side of his face. His left ear, purple and misshapen, bulges from the side of his head. His chin juts forward. The main body of tissue laced with blue veins swells in a dome that runs from sideburn level to chin. The mass draws his left eye into a slit, wraps his mouth into a small inverted half moon. It looks as though somebody has slapped three pounds of wet clay onto his face, where it clings, burying the boy inside. The boy is Sam Leitner, born with a vascular anomaly, a living mass of blood vessels that have invaded the left side of his face. The growth, the tangible lymphatic capillary cells beneath the skins of his face have already necessitated two emergency surgeries before he was a couple days old, and then he nearly died on the operating table four years later. At that moment, his parents decided enough and that they would only seek further treatment when he decided. 
now as a 14-year-old, about to go into high school, he has decided. Show a picture of Sam and his, uh, that's Sam and his family. And then when he went to the doctor, and the, so the whole story is about the doctors at Boston University who take on this operation, which was incredibly risky, very in danger of taking his life. And what they said, like what motivated him was just the simple desire that everyone knows what it's like to want to be accepted. And you think what makes the story, the reason why it won the Pulitzer is because it touches on something deep in every one of us. Like in the way he writes as people would, uh, he follows Sam for a couple weeks and just the shocking way that people would stop and stare or turn their face away. And we all know what it's like to feel, feel that. And what he's feeling in, in an extreme level, this is a desire that everyone has. That's why it's so powerful. But deep down, we know in us something is wrong. I'm not who I should be. We're sin-stained and guilty, and we're looking for the smile. And the power of what is promised in Isaiah is that there's a someone who's going to come that can sympathize with that more than maybe anyone else who's ever lived. Let me read you the story of another man who was mocked and they turned their face away. He who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he, the suffering servant, the one who's going to come to purchase our redemption. He has he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears, he was silent and opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul made an offering for our guilt, he shall see his offspring and he will prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands and out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. See, he out of the anguish of his soul, by his suffering, by his struggle, by his sorrow, he's going to purchase a people that he then can turn his face on and be satisfied. I mean, the glory of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus went through all these things that we're promised to go through. And yet he didn't have the promise of God being there with him. 
That's what he's crying out when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am going through the waters. I am being baptized into the waters of judgment, and I am alone. I am passing through the fires of your wrath, and I am alone. I am being unmade so my people can be remade. I am being deformed so my people can be reformed. I am being cast out so my people can be brought back. I will endure the Father's face turning away from me. So by faith, when you repent, it can turn back towards you. That's what we talk about when we talk about salvation. That's what justification is. Justification is entering and experience the freedom that our debts are forgiven and our sin is covered and that we have been freed. I mean, justification is a fancy theological term uh, that you are now accepted. The thing that Sam so desperately wanted and every single person in this room desperately wants, we are accepted in his sight when we confess our sins and by faith turn to him and believe in his promises. And that's living a life of glory. That's what it means to live the life of glory. So why are you here? You are here for his glory. What does that mean? It means you live a life of praise and thanksgiving to him. Well, how can you do that? By faith, you accept his grace and have the Father's face now shine upon you. And now the truest thing about you is verse 4. You are precious in my eyes. You are honored and I love you. And so as we close, maybe we just need to take a moment and say, do you know that? Like you're, if you're a Christian, that's the truest thing about you this morning. Do you know that? Are you living in that power? Or maybe take a minute and just think about maybe you're in a situation where you're saying, I know what it means. I'm going through the waters and I'm in danger of being overwhelmed. Own this promise. So you, you, you said we're going to go through it, so we can't go around it. We're going through it, but your promise is that you are going to be there with us. Or you said we're going through the fire. Yep, we're in it, but your promise is not going to burn us. So take those things before him now. Lord, we praise you for the gift of your word. We praise you for the reality that we have been called, we've been created in love, called for a purpose, called to glorify you. And we ask now that you help us. So I pray for anyone who's there in the midst of the waters and they feel like they're overwhelming them. I pray that you would help them be there with them. Send them a community and companions that they know that they don't walk alone. They walk with friends and they walk with you. Pray for anyone who's in the fire you promised not to, that they wouldn't be burned. So help them not to be burned, not to be scarred, but to pass through. And we thank you for the gift of acceptance in your son's sight. We thank you for the redemption that he purchased. And now we ask that you would help all of your children to know just how deeply they are loved and how they are precious in your sight, honored and loved. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.